Hello and happy Friday, everybody. It's your host, Paris Grant from the Millennial to Millionaire podcast, where we do not keep it 100. We keep it 1 million. And on this episode, Eric Brotman was kind enough to come back on. This is the second time coming on the show and answer questions that you guys submitted. Now, I'm on social media now. That means Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, TikTok, all that good stuff at the M2M podcast. So please make sure to follow if you haven't already. And while you're at it, feel free to send in more questions or suggestions for topics for the show. I love being able to have the guests that come on be a resource for the audience because that's the whole point of the show is to spread the knowledge spread the wealth so eric yeah like i said was super cool he came uh, he came on he knocked out these questions and he also answers listener questions in his own show don't retire graduate and all the information for both my stuff and his stuff is in the bio if you're a new listener welcome and if you're an old listener welcome back I thank you so much for supporting the podcast. I've been seeing a lot of new listeners coming in because of the whole social media thing. And I thank you for giving me the time to actually listen and see if the podcast is worth listening to. And I'm sure that you will find that it is. So I'm not going to waste any more of your time. Without further ado, we're going to get right into the show. This is it. Like I said, don't keep it 100. Keep it 1 million. Everybody stay safe and keep on making good financial decisions. Welcome back to the Millennial to Millionaire podcast. As always, this is your host, Paris Grant, and I am joined by a special guest. Don't get your numbers confused here, people, but he's the first guest I've had on for a second time. He's the first double feature I've ever had. It's Eric D. Brotman from Don't Retire Graduate from BFG Advisors. Uh, yeah, the man, he came on and he had the episode about the corona, uh, about coronavirus and what us millennials should be expecting. And you guys seem to really like it because I have 11 questions here that I've gathered from different members of the audience. Uh, if you wrote in questions, thank you. If you asked to be anonymous, I will respect that. If you gave me your name, I will use it. Um, but yeah, thank you guys for writing in the questions and thank you, Eric, for coming on to answer these questions. How you feeling? Uh, it's great to, it's great to be here. I feel great. I don't know what the questions are, so I hope I can answer them. We're going to find out real soon. <laughs> we will find out. And then, but if there's any questions that he's not able to answer, or if you're upset that you didn't get your questions in, uh, soon enough for this episode, you can send in more questions that I will be giving to Eric because he has his own, you know, he has his own stuff going on and he has his office hours, uh, which is his own podcast where he has a Q&A section so you can answer your questions there as well all the links to his stuff will be inside the bio and at the end of the show we'll plug everything in but yeah this is not your last chance if your question is not listed right here you will get another chance at this maybe so uh yeah let's just get right into it um before we do though if people didn't listen to the last uh the last episode that you were on can you just give us a little bit of background about like what you do and why you're sure sure well uh you you know I'm, i'm the ceo of bfg financial advisors in suburban maryland I've been in practice for 26 years, started the company 17 years ago. We have 21 employees currently working in 21 of their homes, which is a unique and amazing thing. Uh, Eight financial advisors, clients in 31 states, uh, and we manage wealth for families, uh, many of them two and three and four generations, uh, and help folks make good decisions around taxes, around retirement, around benefits, around insurance, around risk management, cash flow, debt. Pretty much you name it and um it, it's fun we get to impact a lot of lives so that's that's what i do and when i'm not working at that 
Uh, I, I host the Don't Retire Graduate podcast, and uh, the book with by that same title is coming out September fifteenth, and it's going to be a it's going to be an exciting fall. <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Well, like I said, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, let's just get right into it. Question number one. This one comes from Kasia. How realistic is it to passively own real estate properties for uh, for the sake of income? Kasia, that's a great question. And the, the short answer is it's very realistic and it's very doable. Um, the one thing I would suggest, though, is that you, you don't make it a hobby. Don't uh, don't moonlight at this. Decide if that's what you want to do for a living and go do it. The, the challenge with with owning real estate, particularly residential real estate, is that you tend to be immediately under diversified because you own one property or two properties. And when you do that, if you have one lousy tenant, your entire business model is out the window. If you have to go to, to have someone evicted or someone's not paying their rent or somebody destroys one of your homes, it's a serious problem. So what I tell folks is plan to have at least 10 properties so that you're diverse and so that you can withstand one or two either vacancies or tenants that aren't great. Um, and if you want to be in the real estate business, be in the real estate business. Don't be in some other business and then just buy a rental property. Um, that is a very slow and painful way to try and build wealth and a lot can go wrong. Got it, got it. So question number two, it comes from Andy, also has to do with real estate, um, not so much about income, but what is a normal age to buy a home? I don't think there is such a thing as a normal age. <laughs> I will tell you, I, I know folks who, who bought homes at 22, and I know folks who are 35 and, and still haven't decided that they want to buy. Yeah, Andy, if you're talking about a primary residence, you're talking about buying your own first home, the first thing you have to decide when you look at that is, are you putting roots down? Are you going to stay long term? What you don't want to do is buy a home and then two years later, change jobs and have to move to Albuquerque and now you have a new problem because you've got a property and you're either going to be an absentee landlord or you're going to sell it in short order. It is really expensive to buy and sell personal residences. They're not investments. They are uh, nests. They're places to live. They're places for your stuff. They tend to cost a lot of money. They don't tend to make you money. So the reasons to buy a house to me are primarily psychological, not financial. If you're going to put roots down, if you're going to start a family, if you're if you're looking to to um, to join a community and be a, a long-term member of that community, then buying a home is a fabulous thing. Um, but if you haven't solidified your career or determined your geography for the next, I would say at least seven years, I, I wouldn't even buy a home. There there are benefits to renting in the form of being extremely flexible and being able to pick up and go when you're ready to go. Got it. Okay. Okay. How about patience there? So this next question comes in from Ronnie, and she asked that I give some context before I give the question. Um, she has student loan debts that have been deferred that are not due until 2022. That's when she has to start making payments on them. But right now she doesn't have any like, uh, there's no outstanding like credit card debt. She has like a credit card, but it's not any like immediate debt like that. Um, she wants to get in, she wants to start getting serious about her finances. Should she pay off her debt first? Should she save? Or should she start investing or should she just do all three? Like what's the order of priorities here? Um, if nothing is really like it necessarily needs to be immediate, what would be like the strategy there? Uh, uh, Ronnie, it's a good question. And I, I think a lot of it depends first and foremost on your income and what type of work you're doing. And, and here's what I mean by that. 
If you have no consumer debt, there's no credit card balances that you're carrying and the, the balances that you do have are student loan debt that are deferred for another two years. My, my inclination usually is to tell folks to pay debt down first. There's nothing better than being debt free other than potentially a mortgage for, for leverage. However, if you work for an employer that has a match, for example, on a 401k or 403b plan, and if you put 6% into the plan, they match 3%, the first thing you want to do is take advantage of that money. If they're contributing to an HSA for you, a health savings account, or a retirement plan for you, and you have to participate in order to benefit from that, um, or if you have the opportunity to buy, for example, company stock at a 10 or 15% discount or with some kind of match, then it makes sense to take whatever free money um, your employer is going to provide for you. After that, I would do two things. One, I would start chipping away at the student loans early. Um, I think particularly if you have several of them, determine whichever ones have the highest interest rate and chip at those first. Um, and then also build your emergency fund. Make sure you have the rainy day fund, so to speak, because things go wrong in life and you don't wanna to have to rely on Visa or MasterCard to solve those problems. So I wouldn't do any significant investing until those three things have happened. I would have the student loans paid down or paid off. Uh, I would have an emergency fund that's in cash, that's liquid and, and not at risk. And I would take advantage of whatever free money your uh, employer or employers are offering, if any. Got it, got it. Okay. So this next question comes in from Irina. She's a little bit more experienced than some of the other listeners. Um, she wants to know about different kinds of securities, uh, more specifically derivatives. She wants to know what options are, futures, calls, puts. What do all these things mean and are they relevant to a millennial investor? That is a um, that is a question that will take about four hours to answer. So you're ready. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, warrants its own episode. <laughs> so yeah, buckle, buckle up. Now, here, the, the reality is most of the time, um, those are types of assets that, or, or investments that can be used for two purposes. They can either be used for offense or they can be used for defense. Um, and options, typically, I see options as being terrific for defense. And here's what I mean. Let's say you own, Irina, you own a, a bunch of company stock. You work for XYZ Corporation and you own a bunch of company stock. And you like the company, you think it's a terrific place to work, you're feeling patriotic about owning some company stock, but you're afraid that if the company takes a hit, it's really gonna impact your world. What you can do is you can use options that essentially create a floor on that stock, such that if the stock drops more than X percent or more than X dollars a share, it'll trigger your ability to sell at a given price so that there, it's not a bottomless pit. You can't lose everything. You can't go all Enron on this thing. So as a defensive measure, that's a good thing. Now, of course, that costs you money because you're buying insurance. So when you use these products for defense, you're buying insurance um, and you're trying to protect a position. Um, futures contracts are, I mean, there's, there's really so many different variables here, but typically managed futures contracts come in a bunch of, of different um, asset classes. It could be natural resources, it could be precious metals, it could be commodities, um, and uh, you know, it, it, could be, um, it could be a variety of different types of contracts. And what you're doing with futures contracts is you're promising to deliver a physical, physical thing at a given date. And so what you have to do is you actually have to close that position within the period of time. So let's say that uh, Paris and I were gonna have a, a futures deal and he was promising to deliver to me 
100 acres of timberland in 90 days. Well, I'm not sure, I don't know Paris that well, but I'm not sure he owns 100 acres of timberland, but he's promising to give it to me in 90 days. That means within that 90 day window, he actually has to acquire it to send it to me. And that means you're playing a very speculative game about what is what is timber going to cost and what are the what are the rates going to look like and is he going to make money or lose money on the deal? Um, and when you start talking about particularly millennials uh, and younger investors um, and even most families should really stay away from all of this stuff. I mean, in, unless it's for defense, you should really stay away from anything. If you can't understand it, then whoever is issuing it has a great advantage over you. And, you know, when, when 0809 happened and derivative markets were two and three uh, iterations deep and these uh, the collateralized mortgage obligations all exploded, um, consumers were generally so far down the food chain, they had no shot at, at being anything but cannon fodder by these kinds of things. So, number one, I'd say if it's, if it's not straightforward enough for you to understand, you ought to avoid it. And number two, if you're going to use any of those types of things, use them for defense. Do not use them to try and make a quick buck. It is too dangerous. Got it. Got it. Let me check. All right. This next question comes in from Ashley. How much is too much when it comes to saving? If you're somebody who is paying off debt, somebody who, you know, you're paying off debt, you're building up your emergency fund, you're getting the employer match, um, but you just want to make sure that you're secure, at what point is it like, is it too much or is there any way of knowing is it personal um ashley great question and i love your name i love the name ashley um first and foremost there is no such thing as too much saving if you are um if you're putting away 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 cents of every dollar you make that's an extraordinary thing what it means is that you're able to live well below your means now the caveat to that is if you're saving so much money that right now you are miserable there's a point where that doesn't make sense you know, it's great to plan for the future, but you also have to live today. So this idea that you're gonna become incredibly wealthy when you're 70, but right now you're eating ramen noodles every night, may not be the best plan. There's, a, there's definitely a balance in there that's personal to you, but I've seen entirely too many people who build an enormous amount of wealth waiting to take that trip someday or to have that experience someday, and then they're not healthy enough to do it, or there's some emergency in their family, or they dropped dead and they never took the trip. So I think if you're saving to the point where you're on track for financial independence, there's nothing wrong with putting away additional money, but don't forego living life because you just don't know how many, how many years you have and, and you ought to enjoy them too. So that's a personal thing. I, I, mathematically, you save as much as you'd like. That's great that you can overdo it. Um, but I would say psychologically, you're missing out on a lot of things if you do that, and, and you may not ever reap those rewards. You know, people people say, uh, I've heard it said, he, he or she who dies with the most toys wins. And I say he or she who dies with the most toys still dies. So it would be better to actually play with some of those toys along the way. True enough, true enough. That's funny. All right, you're knocking these things out. You're going crazy right now, man. We're almost halfway there. Listen, five for five is pretty good. That means I can take a couple of passes or I can phone a friend or something on At a few point, of these. Hey, I'm saving. Get a lifeline. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm going to I'm gonna need one. I'm saving one for, for, for something. I, I know you're sandbagging the toughest questions, Paris. I know you're doing no, that to me. No, honestly, you're knocking these things out. The one about the like derivatives, I, I, I was like, that was probably going to be like the most difficult one I could think of. Oh, well, good. If, if it's all easier from here, I'm, I'm good to go. That's great. All right. <laughs> we'll see. All right. So this next question comes from uh, Teresa, Teresa. I'm not really sure. 
um, I guess she's on the lazier side. Well, I'm kidding. I'm not, you're not lazy, Teresa, because you actually wrote in this question. But she says, if there was just one thing and one thing only that you could uh, you could do to make sure that you get ahead financially, what would it be? If there's just one thing you could tell somebody to do. One thing. I would never carry a credit card balance ever in my life. Never carry a credit well, card balance. Not a balance. Use the card, get your miles, get your points, have your fun. Don't ever pay anyone 18 or 22 or 29% interest on anything. Um, if there was one thing you could do, and only one thing, it would be avoid consumer debt and especially avoid credit cards because they are it, it, they can really get you in trouble in a hurry. And I don't think that's a lazy question at all. So there you sure go. Enough. Sure enough. I mean, I think it's uh, I think when it comes to financial advice, it really just takes like those one or two things that you just tell yourself that I think can like be like really good for a lot of people. So it's not a lazy question. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. Well, listen, if you, if you have if you have personal debt. Um, and you're carrying it, it, it weighs on you like you were trying to work out with a 45 pound weight vest instead of not having one of those on. And while that might get you in good shape, <laughs> it could also it could also cause cardiac arrest. So don't 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 carry that. That's not worth it. Makes my back hurt just thinking about it. <laughs> All right. So this next question uh, comes from Gabriel. He says, uh, when does it become important to start caring about taxes? I, I, I think you should always care about taxes. I, I, I don't think you should let the tax tail wag the dog. So in other words, you know, there are, there are uh, accountants, Gabriel, who are going to say, um, oh, let's make this plan completely tax-free in every way. And, and there are a lot of machinations to do that. And you could spend a bunch of money. Like, for example, you know, a, a wealthy people can spend tens of thousands of dollars on estate plans just to try and avoid various types of taxation. Um, some people are willing to do that and some are not. I think you should worry about taxes as soon as you make enough money that the piece of the pie that is going to the government makes you angry. Um, and, and everybody's got a different threshold for that. But at some point, you, you know, I, I think people are, are generally pretty comfortable paying for services they're using. But there comes a point where if you, if you start to really see your income go up, um, the, the progressive nature of particularly the income tax code is so, it, it, it's so difficult um, that once you start making what I'll call real money, the, the, the serious money, taxes are going to matter to you in a different way. Um, if you're just getting started, um, there are things you can do to take small tax deductions, but quite frankly, if you're, if you're a Gen Z or a millennial, um, taxes are probably not the biggest problem you have right now. It's, it's probably... Uh, income or cash flow and you ought to do things like Roth IRAs and not worry about deductions right now. Um, one thing I do know is that the government just went through a multi-trillion dollar stimulus package and we are all going to pay for that at some point and the people who are going to pay the most for it are the ones with the higher incomes. So um, you can pay attention to that as you start to make more money. There, there, there comes a tipping point. Uh, and I've seen this because we, you know, we have a lot of younger employees and I've seen them when they first get hired, think taxes are no big deal. And after they've been with us a while and start making real money, they, they apologize for saying all the things they said. <laughs> I'm complaining about taxes. All, oh, now I get it. You know, it, you know, people, people who earn, for example, a big bonus and then realize that 45% of it is going to the government get real upset real fast. 
you know it's so funny is I got my first bonus and for some weird reason like I got like they sent out like you know like this thing saying oh you're gonna be getting one and in my head I saw the number on the bonus and I was like okay yeah. I was like so I was like I just added that number to my paycheck and then when I looked the next morning I paid taxes on it and like it seems silly but I was like I really did not even think about it and I was like oh yeah like I'm not getting that whole thing like I thought something well was wrong. Well, and, and here's the way here's the way tax withholding works. And, and this is important to know if you are in a situation where you're gonna get a bonus of any amount. When a bonus is paid by a W-2 employer, taxes are withheld as if the amount of that check is the same as the amount of every check you're gonna get all year. So they tend to over withhold. So if, for example, let's let's say you were, you were making, for round numbers, you were making $52,000 a year, you were making $1,000 a week and you suddenly got a $20,000 bonus, it's a good day. That $20,000 bonus, your weekly check, instead of being 1,000, would be 21,000. They would tax you as if you made $21,000 a week all year. So when they withhold it, they're not gonna withhold it at the 22% you might be used to, they're gonna withhold it at the 36% or 35%, and you'll wind up getting a lot of that back in the form of a tax refund at the end of the year because it was withheld and it shouldn't have been paid. So a lot of times you'll get a bonus and it'll get sliced and you'll be a little upset, but it usually does wind up creating a tax refund later in the year, unless you're lucky enough to get that bonus every week. In which, case <laughs> no, which case it's no longer a bonus, it's Christmas. <laughs> it's just how much you get paid, it's a raise. Right. Got it, got it. For sure, for sure. All right, knocking these out. So we're at the, getting closer to the finish line. This one comes from and this one comes from uh, somebody who wants to remain anonymous. Uh, they started investing, and they the only thing they invested is the S and P five hundred. They're asking if there's any reason they should diversify out of it. There, this person is a millennial. I don't know how old they are. You know, S and P five hundred is is a, an index that um, that represents five hundred of the largest stocks in the United States. Um, the United States market makes up somewhere around half of the world markets, which means by holding only the S&P, you're already only holding half of the stock universe. Um, in addition, stocks are only one of the asset classes to consider, which means now you're holding an even smaller piece of the universe. And more than that, while, uh, while the S&P 500 has a, a track record that is uh, easy to monitor, you can't actually invest in the index itself. You have to invest in a fund that holds the stocks that are in the index. So you can't buy the index, you can just buy a fund that owns the stocks that are in the index. Here's the problem, an index fund has what are called mandated purchases and sales. So let's say you're in a, and I don't wanna use a fund company's name, but you're an XYZ's S&P 500 fund. Okay, it makes no difference which, which company. And let's say it's a billion dollar fund. And you own however many shares you own and you own that and um, ABC company gets word that they're being dropped from the S&P. They are no longer gonna be in the, in the Standard & Poor's 500 index because they had some losses or they're no longer there. So that means that manager of that fund has to sell the shares of that ABC company. The problem is it's announced and then everybody on the street starts selling that stock knowing what's coming. And by the time the S&P manager is able to sell all those shares in a big fund, they've gotten a lousy price because it's already been oversold and the price has dropped. Same thing's true with whatever's replacing ABC. If ABC is being replaced by DEF, people have started to buy it up. And by the time that manager has sold the ABC at a price that's artificially low, they then have to buy DEF at a price that's artificially high. 
So while while passive investing or buy and hold is, I think, a very a, a very logical strategy for a lot of cases, I would say owning an index fund by itself is probably not the answer because they have execution points that are just not good, and there are other inexpensive ways to be passive. Um, asking if you should diversify away from the S&P is, is really comes down to your personal situation. It depends on how much money you have in, in, uh, in your accounts and so forth. But generally, I'd say that while U.S. stocks and particularly large companies in the U.S., I think are, gonna, are, are going to perform a little better in the, in, the, um, in the recovery that comes after COVID. So I don't think it's a bad place to be. I certainly own lots of U.S. stocks and I certainly own lots of large cap stocks. But there will come a point as you grow your wealth that diversification will matter. And it'll matter in lots of ways. It'll matter in terms of asset classes. It'll matter in terms of types of stocks, size of companies, um, um, industries that you're in. You know, the S&P at one point in, uh, in 1999, the S&P was almost half tech because that's just the way it was weighted. And so when the Y2K bubble hit, the S&P got crushed. And it got crushed disproportionately because the big tech companies made up such a huge percentage of that index. So just be careful with that. I, I don't think any I don't think anyone should hold typically just one position or one asset class unless you're truly just getting started. And even then, there are target retirement funds that will allow you inexpensively to have more diversity than that. And you may want to look at those, particularly if they're in your retirement plan. Got it, got it. All right, this next question comes from Carrie, and I think it kind of has something to do with the stimulus checks that have gone out, but it is what to do with the windfall. If you won the lottery, what would you do with that money? So, well, it depends. If the lottery was if the lottery was only $1200, I I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd question what lottery you were playing. I don't I think, think anyone's the, the stimulus the stimulus money is um I, let's most let's people, think it like two different questions. Let's have one, yeah. what I do my stimulus check, and then the other one is, what would I do if I won the lottery? Uh, that's fine, but I only agreed to answer 11 questions. Now you're asking me. <laughs> the other one's a bonus. Um, but okay. So, Carrie, number one, what are you going to do with this windfall? Um, first of all, it, it's, it's not enough money that it's liable to be a life-changing event. What it might do is it might help you with an extra month's rent or, or, or some of your extra bills. Um, if you have ugly debt, that is at a high interest rate, I would use it to pay that down. And if you don't, I'd put it in the bank. Whatever you do, don't spend it unless it's an absolute necessity because this might be the last lifeline you get for a while, uh, particularly if you're out of work. If you're still working, it's a little different, but if you're out of work, th this could be the last lifeline. I would hold on to it like it was, uh, like it was sacrosanct. Um, in terms of the lottery, what would I do? It really depends on the size of the lottery. Last time, I, I don't play the lottery a whole lot, but I did win 10 bucks on a scratch off once, and that was exciting. Um, I think if, if you were to win, uh, if you were to win a lottery that was- 100 mil. 100 million dollars? 100 million. All right, well, first, first, you win 100 million dollars, the first thing you have to do is you have to decide, are you taking the lump sum or are you taking some stream of money? Let's say that, oh, okay. Now, let's say you decide on the lump sum. Um, that 100 mil will be about 50 after taxes, maybe 55. Easy. Let, let's first cut it in half. All right. Now that you've cut it in half, that's still enough money for almost any human to live comfortably for the rest of it. <laughs> I would certainly hope so. But most lottery winners wind up bankrupt. It's true. Um, winning the lottery is a really bizarre curse. Um, people who win the lottery wind up 
getting sob stories and people ask them for handouts and they have to question their friends and their family and it, it really is actually kind of a horrible thing and i know that sounds stupid but if you've built a company and you sell it for a hundred million dollars you're going to treat that money differently than if it just fell in your lap and most lottery winners spend obscene amounts of money and they spend more than they actually have because they have no idea the taxes that are going to pile on the taxes and they wind up bankrupt so um i would say first of all don't play the lottery um if you're going to do, truly do it for fun because it is you're, you're you're more likely to be hit by lightning twice than to win the lottery um and the second thing i would say is if you ever win that kind of money number one take it anonymously don't tell anybody because unfortunately it could ruin a lot of relationships that are important in your life and number two get a really good accountant a really good attorney and a really good financial advisor and do everything in your power to not make this a public thing lottery winners wind up being hermits they wind up um, retreating from society they wind up broke it's a weird and sad condition um, and you know, somebody like me, if, if I had $50 million drop in my lap like that, I know exactly what I'd do with it and it would be responsible, but I would be an extremely rare case because I do that for a living. And if I didn't, it, it, I think it would be a real problem. So if you win it, you're welcome to give it to me. I'll take, I'll take, I'll take really good care of it and I'll never forget you. Anything. If you win the lottery, you just go sign up with BFG and they'll take care of you. That would be terrific too, as long as you promise to, to not make horrible decisions that we have to shake our heads at. <laughs> All right, we got, okay, so now we got that one out, we got that one out, we got two more. The other one, okay, two more, one of them is technically not really a question, it's just, he just left me one word, but I kind of I get what he meant. He just said Bitcoin. Bitcoin? He said, I, if you could I'm going to give you a one, anything, I'm, I'm going to give you a one word answer. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, no to Bitcoin. Anyone, anyone giving a one a one word question is getting a one word answer. No, I, I, I will stay as far away from that. There are certain things out there that are that they're, they're just so tempting, and they look like a way to get rich quick, and they are a house of cards. And it could be the it could be a game changer, or it could be nothing. And that kind of risk, in almost any case, makes no sense, and it's not something I'd buy for anything. Yeah, it's funny. Somebody, uh, I was on somebody's uh, YouTube the other day, and we were recording this interview, and he asked me like, "What's the one investment that like I would never touch?" And I was like, "Yeah, probably like Bitcoin. I just would not." Yeah, I'm with you on that boat. So now we got the last question, and I honestly did not save. I did not plan it out like this whatsoever, but I think it's like the most fitting last question for this episode for this show. What do you, if the person wants to remain anonymous, what do you think of the average person's like uh, financial literacy? Like when you see somebody on the street, are you like, whoa, this person's like, whoa, or like, what, like what do you think of the average person's level of financial literacy? I, I think it's woeful. Um, most people get no financial literacy education in school. Um, very few get any at home. And, you know, we all learn lessons from our parents and a lot of those lessons are wrong. You know, we watch our parents, sometimes you watch parents fighting about money, where you watch one who's a spender and one who's a saver and they can't get along, where they're both spenders and they wind up in trouble, where they're both savers and they never do anything. Like there's so much baggage, there's so much baggage around money. Um, and none of us are taught. Um, 
there's there's very little financial literacy education in schools. Um, you know, I, I have testified before the state Senate in, in Maryland trying to get financial literacy education into the public school system and into schools here. It's, it's, a, it's a significant passion of mine. Uh, working with the comptroller's office, working with uh, some of the leadership here at, in Annapolis in our state capitol. And there are lots of very hot potatoes politically and reasons why it's difficult to get done. So we've started working with uh, Junior Achievement, which is a, a, an international organization that does financial literacy education, primarily for young kids. Um, <clears throat> elementary, what's that now? I volunteer with Junior Achievement. Oh, all right. Well, then, then you know. <laughs> I think, I think Junior Achievement's an incredible organization doing great work, and I think while what they do does not replace what a true financial literacy course would do it does get young people thinking about this and quite frankly it's not just the young people it's their parents people do not understand finance and it's more and more complicated and sometimes i think it's complicated on purpose i think some of these organizations realize that consumers are going to make mistakes whether it's with a mortgage whether it's with an investment let's go back to those derivatives people don't understand them they shouldn't be be messing with them uh and so the financial literacy in this country, uh, the illiteracy rate for finance is even higher than the illiteracy rate in terms of reading. Oh. And, um, and, and it, is, it is a serious problem. Uh, people who understand finances have a much better shot at managing them, a much better shot of avoiding the, the third rail, avoiding that iceberg, if you will. And um, I think it is one of the, the failures of our education system that we don't empower young people with decisions that are incredibly complicated. Let me, let me give you a perfect example of that. Uh, you, you might've heard there's a bit of a student loan crisis happening. Some of your listeners, I, I'm not saying they have, I'm saying some of your listeners might've borrowed 50 or $100,000 to get an undergraduate degree. Maybe. I'm just throwing that out there. I'm, I'm making this up. Um, here's the problem. These decisions are often made by kids who are 17 or 18 years old. They are making decisions that are going to impact their financial lives forever. And they're making them before they're legally allowed to have a Budweiser. They are not prepared for that. They are not armed for that. And their parents can't help them much. Because like any kid, if they say, hey, I got into xyz university and it's the greatest thing and it's i'm gonna get a great job and it's worth borrowing all this money and so forth parents aren't armed with enough information to help kids understand what's going to happen if they take that student loan and if there's one thing coming out of covid that is really a, a game changer it's going to be that higher ed changes and it changes forever um, one of the things i believe is that some of it will go remote some of it will be less linear. It'll be less likely that somebody goes right from high school to college and spends four years there and borrows money to do it. Um, I think college is gonna get less expensive, finally, because you're only gonna have two kinds of schools left. You're gonna have the Harvards and the Princetons that have such huge endowments that they can have the smartest kids they, they want and they don't have to charge tuition, quite candidly. They have enough money to never charge tuition again. And then you have state schools that get government funding and tax dollars and, and real estate taxes and other things that support them. So particularly in state, they can be affordable. I can't think of a good reason to spend $75,000 a year for a private liberal arts college anywhere. And I sure as heck can't imagine borrowing most of that money to do it. 
you're getting a little shaky there. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I'm, I think it's your mic. I'm not sure if it's that, but you're good. I'm good? Did my mic go out? No, it's just, I, I got it. Oh, it's getting a little staticky. No. I don't hear it on my end, but I trust you hear it on yours. No, no, we're good now. We're good now. We're good now. Sorry about that. I think you're no. messing with me. <laughs> no, 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 no. You, what, you don't like my answer? She's like, I can't hear you. <laughs> all righty, tidy. All right, well, I mean, that was the last question. I mean, that was it. You knocked them all out. And you did it in a pretty fast time, I'm not going to front. So, I mean, do you have anything more you want to add on to that one? Uh, the, the, the only, no. The only thing I, I'd say in general is um, questions like these, there there are folks who will answer them. There, there are financial planning type resources available to anyone at any budget. People just don't know where to find them. Sometimes it's financial coaching. We work with companies that do financial coaching where you can sign up for an hour or two of coaching and it creates some accountability and it's not a very expensive experience at all. Um, there are uh, there are advisors that are online advisors, but where there's a human component to it, which I think is real important. I think the idea of a robo-advisor is a little dangerous because um, the computer can figure out your allocation, but it can't figure out your life. It doesn't know what it's like to have a sick parent, you know, or to have triplets. So, um, I, but there are resources for everyone at every age, at every budget, and it's just a matter of finding them. We are certainly not one size fits all. Our, our, our wheelhouse, are folks who are uh, high-income, upwardly mobile families and families of means who are trying to protect their wealth uh, and save some taxes and transition that wealth to the next generation and do good things with it. Um, but there's there are resources for everyone at every budget level, and we have some of those resources. We're actually getting ready to do a campaign um, which is going to be around financial, um, uh, financial wellness and the ability to get financial advice at any budget. And I think it's real important. That goes back to financial literacy. You must learn this stuff and you have to avoid being victimized by somebody selling you something. There are predators out there who call themselves advisors and they're not. And there's all kinds of reasons why they get away with it. But at the end of the day, um, before you take advice from anyone, vet them carefully, research them, check their backgrounds because unfortunately it's not hard to get in to the financial advising business. It's hard to be a great one but it's not hard to, to hang a shingle. And so that, that makes it a very dangerous thing. Got it, got it. So, um, I mean, since we're talking about resources, uh, I mean, now's the time, I guess, like can you plug us into other places where we can find more of your information, more of like all the stuff you've been talking about. Uh, you said you got a book coming out, so we wanna hear about that. Like, let us know everything. Sure, sure. Um, the, the new book is called Don't Retire, Graduate, and it will be everywhere by September 15th of this year. So help me, the next four and a half months or so are gonna be spent getting all of that done. It'll not only be a physical book, it'll be an audio book. Um, we're also putting out an online course and a workbook, which will be a financial literacy course. So that is something that, uh, that folks can use. It'll be a very inexpensive way to get some information. Um, so that comes out September 15th. Uh, also published a, a an ebook that is free, available for download at lowtaxbook.com. And it's on four strategies that most Americans can use and places they can put money where they'll never pay taxes on it again. And it has been a game changer 
for lots of families. It's available for free. You just go to lowtaxbook.com and you download it and it's yours. Uh, and there's good information in there. And then of course our podcast is designed for um, questions like these. So Don't Retire, Graduate comes out every other Thursday. And on the off Thursdays, we do an office hours episode, which is usually a five or so minute segment where we answer questions like these. So for folks who have them, um, you can tweet me at Brotman Planning. You can go to our website at don'tretiregraduate.com. And if you want to check out our company itself, bfgfa.com is BFG Financial Advisors, bfgfa.com. And we have lots of resources. And even for folks, you know, that a lot, a lot of people sometimes are afraid, Paris, to, to call a financial advisor. They're wealthy people are embarrassed about their level of wealth. What I mean is no one thinks they're wealthy. They all oh. think they, they all think they should be doing better. It's an amazing thing. There's so much behavioral, psychological baggage around money. People feel like they're not as successful as they should be. They think they don't have as much money as they should. They think they don't make as much money as they should. And there are so many shoulds. And quite frankly, getting the right, um, the right advice um, and getting advice that is suited for your situation whether you're 25 and just getting started and looking for your first home potentially, like one of, one of the question askers today, or whether you're 55 and you're trying to figure out what the next stage of your life is gonna look like, there are solutions for everyone. It's just a matter of finding the one that fits you. And so it's important to kick the tires of a few different advisors and, and just decide where you're comfortable. And there you have it. From the man himself, that's Eric D. Brotman. Was there anything else you wanted to add on to the show? Other than other than uh, if if you ever want me back, it's a trifecta. That's a hat trick in my world. So you decide if your if your listeners want it, I'll be here. <laughs> Let's see if you okay. We'll see right now if we even qualified to be on the next episode. My, my name is Paris Grant. And this is Eric Brotman, and here on the Millennial to Millionaire podcast, we don't keep it one hundred. We keep it one million. <laughs> there you go. Of course you're coming back, man. <laughs> All right. Thank you for coming on. Thank you.